Hello and welcome to Grubbing in the Filth with me, Tom Sharp. In this episode, truly, we are Grubbing in the Filth. It's a dirty dive into the world of mesofauna, invertebrate creatures that make their home in the soil. It's a dark and strange world of an entirely new scale, where things graze on mould and white-bodied animals like flecks of frost spend lifetimes within the body cavities of slugs. We talk about the ocean as a strange and unfamiliar space, a habitat unlike our own, but it is at least a place we can visit, even if we can't make full sense of it or understand what it is to live within it. But the soil, despite being in many ways familiar, being of the land, is a setting which we can't really visit in any meaningful way. To live within the soil is to live at a scale which is bizarre to human imaginations. How then to visit this world? Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with soil ecologist and macro photographer Frank Ashwood. This podcast will take on an interesting format. To begin, we'll talk about soil and about life within the soil in broad strokes. Then, in a manner very clearly not suited to this medium, we'll look through some photographs. Frank is a photographer of the mesofauna, of the animals that live within the soil. And it's his photos of these tiny, speck-like creatures which will serve as a structure within which we can discover the lives of mites and springtails and symphylans. If you think that looking through photos is an odd thing to do in a podcast, then yes, it is really, but I promise you it works. Now, if you want to see the photos which we'll discuss in the second part of this episode, they'll be linked in the podcast description. However, if your vision is limited, or even if you simply have no intention of having a look at the photos, that's not going to be much of a hindrance. I'll be describing what we're looking at, and you'll still get a chance to enjoy our discussion of what these animals are and how they live. That said... If you are able, having a look is well worthwhile. After all, these creatures, symphylans, hexapods, might not be the kind of animals you can readily call to mind. Still, I'll do my best to paint a vivid picture for you. Let's descend then. Shrink down and enter the world of the mesofauna with soil ecologist, macrophotographer and earthworm enthusiast, Frank Ashwood. Hi Frank, afternoon, how are you today? Yeah, hi Tom, uh, great thanks, yeah. I've been looking uh, the last few weeks, I suppose, at some of these photos that you've been taking and kind of looking at, in particular, the photos of the invertebrates that you've been working with and re- really excited to get you on the on the podcast to have a chat about these animals, so thank you for coming on. Oh, no, thanks for inviting me. Could we begin maybe, could you just run us through, what is your, your professional and your personal relationship with invertebrate life? Uh, yeah, sure. Um... Well, uh, they're kind of intertwined, I suppose, mm. um, hard to separate. But I personally, I mean, I've always been interested in uh, soil life, if I didn't even know it. I mean, as a kid, I, right. one of my earliest memories is looking under rocks. at Mum showed me all the things that was living under there. And um, eventually I went to uni uh, to study biology. And I got quite interested in invertebrates there and looked at spiders for my dissertation. Uh, I managed to do a, a research project in Mexico looking at bees after that, which was uh, which was really nice. Um, but then I guess I didn't know that I could have a career in it. So I kind of fell out of that and went into just a, a normal office job. Uh, but eventually the calling came back and um, I went to do a PhD um, in uh, looking at earthworms, actually, in mm-hmm. la- land reclamation. So sort of landfill being turned into forestry and how earthworms might be able to improve the soil for that. Um, and I sort of jumped around between a few contracts. I looked at carabid beetles for a bit as well in right. pitfall traps. Uh, yeah, and then uh, eventually found myself um, taking a job as a soil ecologist, which was uh, a dream come true. Now I get to look at earthworms and all the mesofauna in forest in the forest in the UK, which is which is great. And and on the side, um, I'm also in with the Earthworm Society of Britain and the Field Studies Council, and I and I help to do training courses for them um, for the public in in earthworms and earthworm ecology and then oh sorry i was gonna go for it go for it uh yeah the one thing i haven't mentioned i suppose is what you alluded to at the start there which is just um the macro photography aspect Mm. which is um a nice lockdown uh story there's not that many um but uh, yeah i didn't have much to do last year in lockdown and i stumbled across 
a friend of mine, uh, Andy Murray, uh, who has a website called Curse of Delight, and he uh, does a lot of macro photography of um, mesofauna and soil invertebrates. And I just absolutely fell in love with those images. Um, and I got in touch. And then it turned out that he actually lived down the road from me. So um, he was really generous and started training me in how, how he does his thing. And uh, that was that was it. Now I'm hooked. So for last year, I've been I've been doing that as well. Well, that is a nice, um, uh, uh, yeah, like you said, a nice lockdown story. I guess yeah. a lot of people who are into the natural world and nature and things, not that I would ever say that, that the lockdown and that the, the pandemic hasn't hasn't affected people in all people to some degree but I think that a lot of people seem to have been finding solace in in the natural world and in in nature and things like that and I think it's it's maybe something that people are even starting to reconnect with through this process and hopefully that isn't a isn't something we lose when things go back to normal as they hopefully will eventually mm, definitely yeah I mean I think everyone's starting to really appreciate their gardens a lot more now um, yeah I haven't got one yeah. so it's been a it's been a I've got a, a bit of well, I've, in fact, this is a nice little sort of a little link here because kind of the origins of this this project of mine. Um, I've got a little bit of grass by the bins where I sit or used to sit last year. Um, that was kind of my equivalent of the garden, and uh, and the project this this podcast is called Grubbing in the Filth, which is sort of a silly title, but originates from this idea of me enjoying. The fact that in this little space by the bins, if I had a, if I stared at the filth into the grass, into the dirt, into kind of the the, the undergrowth, and had a good look, I started to notice that things were living there that you wouldn't necessarily notice if you just are passing by. And inevitably, any kind of even vaguely wild space when you've got grass and soil and and trees and, and things like this there is myriad life living there right and you're a soil ecologist and the thing that really appealed to me about that idea is just that idea that the soil which i see as and many people will see as the thing that is under the interesting stuff in itself is an ecosystem and in itself is a is rich with life, right, and and can be perceived as its own environment. I think that's a fascinating idea. With that in mind, could you just explain for us what is a soil ecologist and and how do invertebrates kind of come into that? Yeah, um, well, I could try. I mean, I'm not even sure I know the definition myself. I, I call myself one, um, right. <laughs> but um, maybe that's far as to say. Um, but yeah, I. I guess uh, a soil ecologist, uh, well, to me, is someone who um, who studies or just takes an interest in um, in the life in in the soil. Because, I mean, soil is a living thing, really. It's a it's a complex living right. system, um, and it's you know, soil performs a lot of functions, whether we realise it or not. That it does a lot of things for us, um, and most of those are, are regulated uh, by the the life in it. Um, and they wouldn't be doing very much if there weren't things crawling around and, and doing their thing in there. Um, and a lot of those are invertebrates, um, not necessarily insects. They, you know, arthropods generally, some other things. Um, and they all, all of their collective interactions are driving the the, the system and the, the services that soil the soil just does uh, for us. So um, I guess. Soil ecologists are people who, yeah, who study and who take an interest in that in in some way, shape, or form. You mentioned that things live in the soil, and most of us are aware of earthworms and maybe moles. These are the things that live in the soil to the layperson. But there's a great deal extra living in the soil, isn't there? And I guess that because when people think about insects or arthropods or invertebrates broadly, beetles and worms and wood lice and stuff like that, we think of these as small creatures, but a lot of the creatures that I see in your photography and that live in the soil, the, the mesofauna, as you've said, these animals are smaller still, right? They're kind of a whole different scale. And I wondered if being someone who works with these animals, who has a degree of expertise in these animals, does it kind of, does that scale normalise itself to a certain degree? I mean, do you, because to me, and I guess to, to many people, yeah, like I said, you, you, you think of, a ladybird is small, but a ladybird is a giant compared to some of the things that live in the soil, right? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so to normalize, well, to, to give, a, give an idea of the scale, I suppose, um, I should say that uh, there's so soil, soil ecologists have got a sort of classification systems for different mm-hmm. sized organisms. So uh, I think you mentioned the, the beetles and worms um, and, and the wood lice are what we would call macrofauna. So that's those are just things that are generally larger than two millimeters is the kind of arbitrary cutoff point that people use. Right. Um, and then so they're all interesting in their own right. And I know you had some great stuff on um, wood lice already. Yeah, and then I look at the mesofauna as well. Um, so those are things between 0.1 and 2 millimeters in size generally. Um, so those are a lot of arthropods, uh, springtails, mites and things. And uh, then you can go smaller than that still. But I mean, my camera work and that kind of thing is uh, doesn't really quite fall into that category. Yeah, I mean, when you're looking at that kind of scale... Um, I guess I, I guess it has become normalized for me. I kind of don't think anything of it now, um, except that you need some relatively, it doesn't have to be expensive kit, uh, but you need some relatively specialist kit to be able to sort of see these things. Um, some of it's beyond uh, being able to just get a good look with your naked eye. So you need a hand lens or a camera with a macro lens or a microscope or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's normalized for me, but the way it's affected the way I, sort of look at the world is uh is interesting to kind of reflect on i suppose i, I guess it looking at how chaotic it is in in the soil <laughs> i i suppose i see our daily world as a bit less chaotic uh than i might have done before uh when you see all of, all of the things that are going on in there um i mean i guess it's organized chaos but just the sheer diversity of creatures in there all these different sizes um it is quite it's, it's fascinating in to kind of i guess to imagine it the alternative is to imagine those creatures as our size and um it becomes something out of a sci-fi film it's kind of mm. both equal parts terrifying and fun to imagine because you got springtails kind of like cows grazing along except suddenly when something comes by they jump 200 meters up in the air or you've got train-sized millipedes plowing through a field so yeah it's um for me it's normalized but i'm starting to realize how how weird that probably is there, there is a i guess when we think about you know, life on a different scale, there's a tendency to kind of like that sort of bug's life effect, right? Where you imagine yourself at that scale and what life would be like down there. Because obviously these animals, they don't know that they're small, do they? And and there are things smaller than them. Uh, maybe they're not thinking about them in quite as much detail as we are. Who knows? I haven't, haven't spoken to them. But question of perspective. I guess they're probably point. wondering if they can eat them, really, some of them. But I dare say <laughs> they are. Well, you, you touched on this, but Soil, you, you described it as chaotic. It's and and it's a another world, really, isn't it? An ecosystem in of itself. It's a living thing, like you've like you've said. So, so when you look at soil, I guess to most people, soil is it's brown. It's sort of a, a phrase that's interchangeable with dirt. It's it's yeah. It's it's the stuff that ground is made of. And I wondered, do you perceive soil in, in a different way to that? When I look at soil, when you look at soil. Are you seeing something different to me? Uh, such stuff as dreams are made of, really. I, I, <laughs> I guess I should warn you never to say dirt around the soil scientist. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, well, I'm all right. <laughs> I'm not really a soil scientist, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, what what do you see when you look at, at soil? Um, well, so that's a good example, right? So I would say that soil and dirt, to me, are relatively interchangeable terms, although I'm aware that dirt can kind of refer to, you know, dirt on your nose you know you can a person can be dirty but soil you could see as it is a sort of it's a brown mealy substance that the ground is made of and there are things inside it and plants grow out of it but beyond that it is a it is a powdery brown substance of various levels of stickiness and when you (laughs) dig a bit deeper it becomes a bit more clay like that's that's my, that's my the level of my expertise on soil. I would say, I love it. Yeah, I mean, people call it the black box because it's uh, a bit of a a bit of a mystery. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose I've got a, an unusual appreciation uh, for for soil just because I because I study it um, and I see it more as a kind of yeah, like we said before, like a system. You know, a, a very a very complex uh, system that is very much alive. Um, but but it's also really fragile, um, and I think that's probably one thing I see differently is just that um, it's something that we need to we need to appreciate and we need to, to to take care of because it does 
is is completely intrinsic to our to our lives whether we appreciate it or like whether, whether people generally appreciate it or or not it's it's there and it's um you know it's where where most of our food comes from it's where it's a global reservoir of biodiversity one of the major uh biodiversity reservoirs on earth and, and you know in in any kind of land system you generally you've probably got more biomass so uh the mass of creatures uh in the soil than you do above ground but we just can't see it because it's so so opaque but yeah i soil and soil itself is is a funny term because there's so many different types of soil so nice. like you know you can i guess one thing is i'm always kind of looking when walking through a different habitat or a different part of the world um not so much these days uh but hopefully soon um <laughs> uh just like what kind of soils you've got because in different habitats like in a forest or in a in a field you can have very different soils developing there and also it's dependent on what's beneath it and then that affects what's what's living in there as well you you've never got a, a compare you know there's never the same in any two places really so you might have like a acidic woodland um with conifer trees and you might not actually get many earthworms in there um because they can't take acidic conditions like that um it's a completely different soil to if you were in the middle of a field with some cows where you dig and maybe it's a bit clay and you've got loads of earthworms in there so yeah it's it's very complex and varied and, and that's what's kind of interesting in it about it i suppose so it, it's very much the case that soil is a is a, a mixed bag so for example yeah. you've, you've recently moved house i know maybe these maybe these two places aren't an, an apt comparison but I, th- I think he moved from the southwest to uh, up into the Scottish borders, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Would would the soils in those two areas be radically different, or would, or is it even even more so than that? Is it the case that within, you know, within one patch of woodland or one garden, the soil will be different? Yeah, I mean, uh, good question. Is is variable in on on many different scales? Uh, but to yeah, to take your question about the the, the different ends of the country mm. sort of um yeah very different soils um you can have very clay soils in bristol um nice. and yeah that that was definitely the case our allotment was a nightmare and then um you can go for a walk around like quite a lot of scotland and you'll find quite organic soils so not quite so much clay quite springy spongy dark organic soils and then within that, those two systems you've got very different amounts of the different types of invertebrates that, that I'm interested in. So you might have a lot more um, organic matter feeding mites, for example, in a, in a very organic forest soil and maybe less earthworms than you would probably have in a clay field right. in the southwest of England. Um, it, it's interesting, actually, that's, that's, that kind of comes on to the one interesting thing about Bristol was somewhere where there's so many people and you think that you think that we've characterized all the things in the soil where there's lots of people like that but just digging in the clay soils in my allotment in bristol i found a, a new species of woodlouse that had never been found in england before wow. uh last year and i was just digging in a in allotment because there's just there's just nobody looking really yeah. at these at soils quite so much um so that kind of that mystery and that potential of soil is is what's really interesting i think absolutely well i think yeah it's it's a I think I've said it already, but it's another world, right? And I mean, you finding that woodlouse, if I'd found that woodlouse, and, and I'm someone who, who compared to the majority of the population, and I've, I've done this as, you know, Bloma and Trumpet, I know very little about these things compared to, to you or to, to any scientist working with these things. But I wouldn't for a moment have been able to recognise that that was a a new species right so for most people if they chance upon something it's just it's it's a it's ephemeral and and we're going to lose that it's i'm not quite sure what point i'm making but if we all went out into our gardens or our space by the bins and, and took a spade full of soil up we would probably find lots of things that haven't been seen before right but that kind of opportunity to record and that opportunity to discovering that scale just simply won't happen well uh, yeah i mean that's uh, that's the sad thing i suppose and that's uh, well firstly i should be honest and say i didn't know it was a new species of woodlouse when i found <laughs> it <laughs> i didn't know much about woodlice then i, I I'm, i've learned a bit more about them now subsequently because i got a bit hooked because finding something like mm. that is uh, is enough to get you pretty interested sure. but 
and I, hopefully that's true for a lot of these things because um soil is one of the last i mean i kind of see it as one of the last great unexplored parts of the earth really apart from maybe the the seafloor is um it's the you can still find new species so easily in in soil systems because like you're saying it's just not that many people that's not that many people looking but there are training there are training programs for the, like courses that you can go on for these um the i mean i i, I did one at, with the field studies council looking at uh, mesofauna um there are lots of materials out there and id guides that you can get hold of quite easily um and quite cheap that you just with a hand lens you probably could go out and really and, and learn quite a lot about these things quite quite quickly it's just kind of taking the the time and the appreciation to mm. take the time out of a busy life to to do that i think it's a really beautiful point actually that it's a, one of the unexplored there's, there's this point that often gets made which is that people want to explore space but we haven't explored the bottom of the ocean and then you can sort of come back to that and say well, yeah but we haven't explored the soil and that's just you know, your house is built in it even as we speak. It's not, it's one step less removed from us even than, than the ocean. And it is, it's relatively unexplored space. Um, let's have a look at some of these, these photos that you've, you've taken, which I, I think are stunning and a little bit humbling almost. Have a look at some of these sometimes, I think. Um, so I've got up a series of photos that we had little, I just thought maybe we could go through them and, I'm aware this is literally an audio medium, but maybe I can put this up somewhere so people can have a little look and we'll do our best to describe what we're looking at. And just have a little chat about them as a kind of a way into talking about the, the biodiversity of the soil. Would that be all right? Yeah, yeah, sounds good. In this first photo, we're looking at an arthropod. It's a segmented grey-brown animal. Its body is hairy, covered in thin bristles which sprout darkest and densest in the ridge between its head and abdomen. On the front of its head are a cluster of dark eyes. The light seems almost to shine through the animal's jointed legs, which are lighter than its body and, indeed, brightest and brownest at the joints. But what is this creature? Okay, so, um, yeah, this is a, a springtail. Okay. Um, it's in the genus uh, Thomaserus, but I'll, I'll zoom out before we, we zoom in. So, um, so it's, a, it's what we call a springtail. Um, they are uh, arthropods, as you said. Um, they are uh, they, they're in the class Calembola, and um, they're, they're hexapods. I won't get too technical with the right, taxonomy okay. of it. And also, you'd be pleased to know that the taxonomy of these things is ever-changing anyway, so don't bother learning it too much because it's probably <laughs> going to change. Um, but yeah, so they're, they're hexapods, which means they're related to insects, um, we think, but they're not technically insects. They're, they're flightless. But they do have six legs. Um, and what makes springtails unique is this, um, and it's what they get their common name from, is this jumping organ they have called a, it's called a furca, um, but it's the springtail that we refer mm. to when we talk about springtails. And it's the thing, you may have seen them if, um, if you're ever sort of looking at the grass or looking at a log or looking at the floor and you, you see some, you disturb it and you see these little, they're normally little white things sort of like fly up in the air, just like bounce way um those are springtails and they they're hugely diverse i mean they're found everywhere um pretty much all terrestrial habits from at the tops of mountains down to deep i think they're i think they were one of the, the lowest living organism in the, in the bottom of a cave somewhere um as a record it was living at the lowest uh, land organism um uh, but they're they're generally sort of fungi and bacteria and organic matter eaters so they're they're friendly to us they're really important um they're what we call detritivores so they are really important for breaking down plant material and cycling nutrients back into the soil um, but they're really diverse and they're uh, probably the second most diverse um arthropods in soil behind behind mites um there's a huge amount of them and yeah they're everywhere but but they're also really interesting. So the, the photo we're looking at here, um, this is one of the larger ones, actually. This is, uh, right. yeah, it's called Thomaserus. Um, I'm not sure which species this one was, but um, this one's really cool because actually it's covered in scales. So some of them are scaly, some of them are hairy or covered in, in CT. Um, some have eyes, some don't have eyes. They've got these long antennae. Um, but this one is what we call one of the slender 
springtails. So it's got quite a long body. Um, right. There's there's four main orders of springtails, and they all look quite different. They're all quite um, interesting. Um, some of them are a bit more rounded. Some of them look like a, they've been called a, a hunched old man in a in a baggy cloak walking along, and they're they're really tiny. Um, that called the Nila Pleona. Um, but yeah, they're they're just these amazingly cute, quite endearing, um, very timid creatures and um they just get on with it they, they don't really they don't really fuss they spend their lives grazing on fungi grazing on slime molds um eating breaking down um decaying leaves and, and and decaying wood and um trying not to be eaten by all the other things that are running around uh, trying to trying to munch on them if you're enjoying grubbing in the filth why not engage with me within the horrendous world of social media you can follow grubbing in the filth on instagram at grubbing in the filth or on Twitter at GITF Podcast. You can also email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com. I really love hearing from you, so whether you want to share a story, a photo, your enthusiasm for invertebrate life, or simply to keep up to date with this whole production, come and jump on board. So with, with these springtails, I mean, you've mentioned the the sheer diversity of springtails, and, and the they're a pretty, would it be fair to say, a pretty... Um, These are by no means rare creatures, are these? are very typical find in the soil. Uh, I mean, yeah, they're pretty. They're pretty common. Uh, you, yeah. You'd be hard pressed to go to most uh, most terrestrial system, ecosystems and, and <laughs> dig, or turn over a log, or look under a rock, or something, and not see some some kind of springtail. Yeah, and yeah, I think this is what I kind of like about this world that you're exploring is that I would say that springtails generally aren't a well-known creature right because i guess just because they are i mean this creature we're looking at here you've mentioned that they vary quite widely in size this is one of the larger ones what kind of scale are we looking at with this this animal so this one's probably about three mil i think in length so yeah quite big maybe two to three um i mean they go down to uh half half a millimeter less than that maybe um some of them quite small um but but it's interesting that people, you know we don't know anything about that most gen- generally people don't know much about them because I think it's fair to say that they are one of the oldest known land-based arthropods. I mean they are. Right. Um, there's there's a thing called the Rhiney chert, which is a a, a mineral um, in uh, I think it's a wall made of chert in in outside Aberdeen. It's basically the oldest fossil record that we have of terrestrial invertebrates, and there's springtails in there. And they don't look very different to the springtails we have today, and that's right. sending it back about four hundred. It's about four hundred twenty million years old. So they they've been around uh, longer than plants. They you know they and they haven't changed much in that time. So uh, an an animal worth knowing about, considering it's it, it's been around long enough for us to know about, really. But we're just not. It's just not on our scale, I guess. Yeah, well, but, you just wouldn't know. I mean, unless you're getting down on the ground with a lens, you just you don't really see them very much. Um, just a little yeah. kind of flick of white as you're kicking through the dirt, maybe. Well, you mentioned, I think, an animal that I think people would have heard of, at least even in kind of colloquial terms. But this next animal, um, this next photo, is a mite. Is that right? The mite is pale, its legs yellowy white, and its body a little darker, pebbly brown colour. Its body, its legs, its two antennae, which extend ahead of it, are bristled with fine white hairs, distributed pretty sparsely but evenly. Its antennae are lengthy, exceeding its body length significantly, seeming to catch the light as they reach ahead of the creature, which stands on a shiny, slimy surface. Yeah, so that is a a, a mite. It's called a, a eupodid mite. Um, I'll, I'll come back to what that means uh, i guess <laughs> i'll zoom out again um yeah so mites are um arachnids they're in the okay. um, subclass i think it's the subclass of akari um in arachnids but so they're related to um, spiders and scorpions and uh, pseudoscorpions and all these other uh, really amazing creatures um mm. but and yeah t t francis gave a really good introduction <laughs> to spiders i thought on your on this oh, podcast yeah. as well no, she's amazing She's the real yeah. deal, I think, just in terms oh, yeah. of just knows a lot about spiders, loves spiders, and is very happy to talk about spiders a lot. And I admire that about her. 
yeah and who can blame her um, yeah. so yeah yeah but so these are like spiders um but they but they're not and and the the arachnids generally are um predatory i mean there's a few examples of arachnids that are more omnivorous but um mites are interesting because they are summer predators but they've actually pretty much represent all of the different ways of feeding there 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 is i think so you've got you've got predators parasites uh omnivores you've got um detritivores so you know like springtails like feeding on decaying organic material you've got um fungivores there's bacteriovores so they eat fungi bacteria pretty much everything is is they they are amazingly diverse um and they are uh the most abundant arthropods in soils so springtails are, are pretty abundant um but mites take the biscuit you know they are they are everywhere um and uh in huge numbers um but their taxonomy like i said is a little bit horrifying uh, i won't get into it too much um and Often it's sort of ever changing yeah i mean i can't, I can't still can't get my head around all the different levels but um there's there's sort of four four main groups that people look at. Some are orders, some some aren't. Um, which are the um, prostigmatic mites and the mesostigmatic mites, and the orobatid mites, and then the astigmatic mites. So they're all technical terms, but the one you've showed me here is a prostigmatid mite. It's um, a, in the genus Eupodidae. Uh, um, and what's interesting about this one actually that you've picked is that most prostigmatid mites. Are predatory. I mean, they're they, they're all fluid feeders, so they've got sort of piercing right. mouth parts, um, and they're mostly predatory. So, um, if you think about uh, one that people might be familiar with is the red velvet mite. If you ever look on the soil and you see this red mite, uh, looks a little bit hairy, but maybe or more like a bit sort of velvety, um, and they they move quite quickly. Yeah, I, I associate um, them with with brickwork. Being a kid and seeing like little kind of fuzzy red if we're talking about the same thing fuzzy red little specks creeping around on brickwork but yeah in the soil as well i guess yeah i think we're probably talking about the same thing here yeah so the bricks will be warm probably in the summer and they'll probably like that um and they're they're predatory so they'll be rushing around looking for something to eat um so they may look cute but they're pretty ravenous um killers and um yeah, but these ones, uh, this eupodium mite is actually a fungus feeder, so it's a bit different. Um, so it will be using its piercing mouth parts to um, find slime mold, um, fruit, like fruiting bodies or something, or the hyphae of, of fungi, and it will be piercing those and drinking the fluids out. And what's interesting about this one actually is it's got, it's like a chubby, just to describe mm. the photo, it's like this chubby little um, round-bodied mite with... Uh, some small white legs but then the two front legs are really long and waving out in front of it like antennae um but because they're arachnids they don't have right. antennae um so it's kind of using these two front legs as antennae um and they, they rush around the soil incredibly fast these mites just endlessly so they're quite hard to photograph actually i'm quite happy with this one um but um yeah they're just rushing around and this was on a decaying log in in a woodland which is you see them quite a lot there because they're looking for quite there's quite a lot of fungi there that they can feed on um yeah but then um you've got other lots of other different types of mite and uh, some people make their their research careers just studying one of the orders of mites um so a lot of people um quite rightly look at the orobatid mites they're the hard-bodied mites also called uh, beetle mites or, or moss mites and they're like um little seeds they've got like hard hard quite hard shells um exoskeletons and they they're very slow moving they've got very long life cycles very slow and they they feed on organic material so you find them a lot in um in forest soils and um, peatlands and things like that because they they're more like grazers they're like tiny little hard-bodied cows basically and they just spend their whole lives just breaking down uh plant material um and they're really good indicators of the quality of, of a, an ecosystem like how much organic material is in the soil what what the state of it is because because different types of these will, will use different pools of organic material um and then there's the ones that uh, are quite they're always quite fun the mesostigmatid mites um which are predators almost not exclusively but most of them are predatory um and i don't know i mean i try to I try to anthropomorphize them and relate to them, but they really do just seem like mindless killing machines. 
um, <laughs> like robots. Uh, they're just like armor armor plated right. robots, like running around. Have you have, have you seen um, Starship Troopers? Uh, yeah, not for a while, but but yeah, um, a good film, I think. Yeah, really. Yeah, going back, I'm showing my age a bit now. I think, but um, they always remind me of the uh, the Arachnids right, yeah, there, yeah. the bugs, like the warrior bugs that rush around just tearing people in half. They're they're a bit like that. They they seem endlessly ravenous. They're running around um, all day, just um, unfortunately for springtails and things, just mm-hmm. munching on them, and uh, it seems pretty. So pretty that's, brutal, that's really. I mean, because sort of scale is the the elephant in the room in this kind of whole conversation is that we have these animals, these mites that we, we think of as, you know, it, it's hard to imagine that this thing's smaller than them, but, but they are still predators of other smaller creatures within the, within the soil. Yeah. yeah it's, 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 it's not really that different to, you know, mm. the world that we live in. It's just that it's just scaled down. Um, and there's just an incredible amount of diversity of these things. Uh, all, all doing their thing so it's just a bit it's just a lot and that's that's one of the good great things about it is you can always find something interesting to to well, see in in this next picture um where we kind of get a better a bit of a better look at the soil because we've got you can kind of see a bit more detail in the i was going to say dirt there um in the soil so you can see kind of individual <laughs> yeah i would shy from calling sink crystal but it almost looks like crystally specks and bits of stone and organic matter and, and mosses and things but crawling through this we have what looks like if i could describe the picture a colorless perhaps slightly transparent what appears to be a, a centipede what looks roughly like a centipede with an elongated segmented body and antennae what are we looking at here yeah, I mean that was a good description. I I wouldn't <laughs> add too much. I think, um, yeah, it's it's funny you should say it looks like a centipede. Um, it's what we call um, well, the common name would be a right. pseudo centipede. Um, so it, it's the te- the scientific te- uh, name is a symphylon. Um, but they are related to so they're in the myriapoda, the myriapods. So they're related okay. to uh, centipedes and, and and millipedes. I think they're more closely related to millipedes. But uh, yeah, so they're called false centipedes or pseudo centipedes. Um, this one's probably about two or three millimeters right. long, I think. Um, and yeah, it's rushing along the soil surface. They're another nightmare to photograph. These ones are very fast. Um, yeah, I've never got a photo of these that I'm really happy with uh, yet. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, but yeah, so there's yeah, there's a couple of interesting things about this. So firstly, um, just say there, the, these are um, segmented. Um, Arthropods, they're myriapods, they're related to, to millipedes, and they, they act very similarly. Um, they feed on decaying organic material, um, helping to break it down. Um, but sometimes they can feed on plant roots as well. So they've got a bit of a name uh, as pests potentially for young young plant roots okay. uh, feeding. So some gardeners might be aware of them. I'm not sure how bad the damage is, to be honest. I think they've probably got a worse name than they deserve. Um, I think there's about 14 species or something like that in the UK of these. I don't think many people are really studying them that much, to be honest. But what's really interesting about them is, um, yeah, as you said, they're pigmentless and uh, they're actually eyeless as well. And and this right. is something you see quite a lot with soil organisms. And it's one of the adaptations for life in a, a very lightless environment is that you don't need you don't need vision if you mm-hmm. live in the soil or you live under rocks all the time. There's not much light, so um, that's not something you necessarily um, require um, and also you don't really need to be pig- have any kind of pigment on you because I mean all these things cost a, have a biological cost to produce so if there's no light nothing can see you then there's no need to have any kind of camouflage or warning colors or anything so what you often find is uh, soil creatures that live uh, in the soil not just on logs or right, yeah, on yeah. The, in grass or whatever um, things that live actually in the soil or under rocks are, are typically kind of um, white or opaque uh, um, transparent um normally without eyes even um a lot of a lot of the springtails that live in the soil have kind of lost uh, lost their eyes lost pigmentation some of them have even lost their their springing organ because they just don't use it um, when they're in the soil so um yeah you, you see that quite a bit with when you start looking at these things is quite often you end up just with various 
either short or long white little blebs <laughs> running around and you've <laughs> got to try and figure out, figure out what they are um one interesting thing about the symphylin you got here actually is that yeah they've so they've got these really beautiful bead-like antennae like these really long um antennae made up of lots of little beads um and at the base of those is um so they don't have eyes but they've they, they make up for it in and you know they're quite complex creatures in a way i suppose um they've got these organs uh called uh organs of thomas Vary, um named after really? the person who yeah i know uh, i think there's some other things of thomas Vary. uh he was he was a researcher into not myriapods i think um and we're still not entirely sure what they do as far as i know um but there's a chance they're sort of vibration and chemical sensitive organs that help them to navigate their way around this this lightless world instead of uh, having eyes yeah I guess it might be quite hard for us to is sympathize the word to sympathize with their with how they do interpret the world um it being so different to ours it's just a really interesting thing there so in all these photographs that we see of these animals inevitably we're seeing them on the surface because you you can't shove a camera under the ground right very easily but these are animals these these soil bound animals aren't just creatures that scuttle across the surface of of the of the soil these are things that live within it right yeah i mean well so the symphylins will sort of um do both when they kind of live mm. quite often at the interface i guess between the soil surface and some objects is where i normally see them so if you turn over a log or turn over a rock you normally see them sort of trying to get away quickly if you want to support grubbing in the filth like a benevolent victorian then you now can visit buymeacoffee.com slash grubbing cast for a quick and easy way to knock a few ducats my way write a little message too if you so wish that's buymeacoffee.com slash grubbingcast any contribution is really truly appreciated thank you our next picture i would say is a is a, a lovely example of a, of a blep of a creature so we've got i, I believe this is a springtail we've got a beautiful little yellow kind of rotund creature six legs pair of antennae and looks like it's got eyes and it's it's looking at a semi-transparent thread coming up from the or i don't know it's looking at it but it's certainly with it semi-transparent thread-like structure coming up from the from the ground um almost looks like a if you imagine here's a very specific way of me to describe it a, a bead of super glue running down a strand of hair but backwards <laughs> that's a really good description um yeah um well you're right um it is a springtail uh it's a it's a, it's a springtail called uh dicertamina saundersi great name um mm. but it's a it's one of the globular springtails i might might have mentioned earlier um this is a different type to the first first so as, as opposed to the, the more elongated ones right yeah as opposed to the more elongated ones I and mean, there's some others there's the uh uh, po- um no sorry p- uh, podura springtails um and they're kind of like um really f- chubby little cheruby um someone oh, was it andy described them as the jelly babies of the springtail world um right and i think that's a really good way of describing them they're like these they they kind of just crawl along they're not very um they're they're a bit podgy and they're lumpy and a bit hairy sometimes and they just um don't look like the others um mm. and then and there's some others that look, there's uh another group the nilipliona that are really really small and look really primitive um and then they're, they're my favorite ones but everyone's favorites it seems when it comes to springtails mm. um i did a twitter poll a while ago <laughs> um and it was pretty much unanimous that um these globular springtails were voted everyone's favorite i tell you um, what as a, as a sorry to interrupt you but as a non-scientist as someone who's relatively new to the world of kind of scientific twitter that the level of nicheness that you can get a twitter poll going about in this kind of world is just a lot of people would look at that and just have absolutely no idea what was going on so i'm, I'm charmed by the fact you were able to get a successful twitter poll on the type of springtail people preferred go on <laughs> Well, I, I didn't say how many votes there were, so... Right, good point. <laughs> I think actually it was about 100 votes or something. It was surprising that's, me. That's very um, good. Very good engagement yeah, for content. Yeah, yeah. rare. Um, no, um, 
Yeah, so this one is, uh, yeah, is, is is quite a charming thing. I mean, th- these are some of the larger springtails, these the globular springtails. Um, and yeah, they've got um, complex eye clusters. And they've got quite long antennae. Um, some of them are differently shaped. Some of them got little spurs for grabbing each other during mating, like courtship dances, which is kind of cool. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, there's, uh, they've got quite nice patterning as well. You quite often, if you ever see photos, mm. they, they've only got these really beautiful um, pigmentation colors all, all around their their bodies um, and they tend to live on the surface uh, of the soil or on vegetation um, and they they feed on sort of fungi and organic matter as well but what it's looking at here so the hair with a bead of super glue on on it upside mm. down as you described it it's quite good um is um actually one of their reproductive structures so um, nice. it's called a, a spermatophore so they to reproduce they and some other um, creatures in the soil as well will we'll, we'll produce these. Um, they always come up with interesting ways of transferring their, their, their sperm to each other. So springtails like this will produce it like a, a, a long stem. It's almost like a lollipop, I suppose. It's yeah. like a long stem uh, of translucent material. And then at the top, they deposit a, a, a bead of, um, it contains sperm and fluid. So it's like, it's called a spermatophore. And, and what they'll do is the female will normally then come along and collect that and then um, use that um, for fertilization. But there's been some studies uh, done actually looking at um, destruction of other springtails, spermatophores by other springtails. So there's kind of a reproductive um, competition. Um, and what you'll find is um, it might be that this springtail here is. Um, just admiring its handiwork or it might be just about to eat the spermatophore from another right. springtail of its species to prevent it from being used to fertilize a female so that its own spermatophores can be uh preferentially su- uh, selected so it's quite interesting it's a, like this really complex fascinating world you never would have thought absolutely that that's well that's a statement that characterizes all these things we're looking at and and to look at this this next picture i've got in front of me is something that because I I know to, to to let the curtain down I I I actually know what some of these things are because I've read your captions, so I do know what this is. But this isn't something I've ever seen before, and that's that's what excites me about these pictures is that they are revealing this kind of unseen but also unconsidered world. So in this in this next picture we've got a beigey yellow. It looks almost like a blueberry, and it appears to be sort of half buried in some some wet soil. So yeah, I, I describe it as a spherical or what appears to be spherical beigey yellow object with a, a an opening or what yeah like i say it looks like the the top of a blueberry where it might connect to a stem typically what what we're we looking at in this picture i was wondering if you'd say lemon um i always think of it oh, as lemon okay. lemon shape like a big like a big lemon mm. or like a small lemon actually a very small lemon um we're looking at an earthworm cocoon there so that is um so i've i've exposed an earthworm cocoon when i was i was digging in uh, in our allotment and uh thought it was quite a nice one so i took a picture of it um so these tend to be uh well i guess somewhere between maybe three millimeters and up to maybe like a centimeter long depending okay, so, on the, so the species quite visible to the naked eye probably yeah yeah you and anyone who's got um like a compost heap uh, or like a compost bin or um, yeah, or if you're lucky enough to have a garden or you just like to dig in other places, you'll probably come across one of these at some point. Um, so if you ever see like a little yellow lemon shaped um, orb um, that looks pinched at either end, um, yes. the chances are it's probably an earth- earthworm cocoon. So yeah, inside there will be a, um, a baby earthworm just uh, growing. And depending on the environmental conditions, it might be maybe three to five weeks or something. And then this tiny little pink string will just come out the end and that's a baby earthworm. Um, and they, they don't molt like other invertebrates might. Um, they just just grow and get bigger. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, well, I guess I'm assuming everyone knows what earthworms are, but I should probably <laughs> explain. Yeah, I, suppose, but, but... I mean, I guess what's exciting about this to me is that earthworms are these animals that a pretty, you know, every kid knows what an earthworm is. They are long, pinkish strings that go through the soil. That's that's how we perceive them. And, and this thought kind of reminded me that these animals have a life cycle and exist beyond that kind of simplified way that I've 
always viewed them. Yeah, I mean they've got a really um really interesting life cycle. Um so they're the earthworms are zoom out with uh, annelid worms so um they're, they're kind of distantly related in um, to leeches as well um but they, they perform very different functions um but they are um i mean they're my favorites because i studied them for my right. phd and I, I i still teach about them and uh i work with the earthworm society of britain um who are sort of a not-for-profit um organization to sort of promote earthworms a bit more um but yeah, and and everyone's just a little bit a bit nutty about uh, earthworms, so I, I can take it for granted a bit sometimes that people don't know quite as much as, as I might. But um, they're really important. They're, they're what we call ecosystem engineers. So um, and not many organisms get that title, um, but earthworms get it because they just do a huge amount. So they you know their burrows and their feeding in the soil. Uh, they they bring lots of organic material down into the soil. They help water and air get in. Um, their food for pretty much everything um and also they help plants grow in many ways as well so earthworms have a huge impact on all the other on the soil for all of the other creatures that we that we've talked about uh today yeah there's about i mean we're in the uk so uh there's there's about 31 species of earthworm in the uk including islands so not not as much diversity as quite a lot of other places in the world but we've got yeah, we got we got some really interesting ones. Uh, we sort of divide them into different ecological groups because they perform sort of different functions in the soil. So some will be deep deep burrowing earthworms, um, and there's only a few species of those, but they they do a lot for bringing leaf litter into the soil. So you know, like in in one year in a forest, these deep burrowing earthworms can bring all of the leaf litter down into the soil from that that autumn, ready for the next autumn. So that's a huge amount of organic material that's going down into the soil for all these other invertebrates to eat. Um, then you've got some sort of living a bit more uh, close to the surface, but still in the soil. And, and it's funny that you call them sort of pink strings because quite a lot of those ones are generally kind of pale, or they might there's there's green ones or sort of bluish colour mm, as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're a bit more bit more diverse, I suppose, than than we give them credit for uh, probably. Um, but yeah, they they uh, they're interesting in terms of their life cycle as well because um, they're hermaphrodites, so they're mm. both male and female. So when you have uh, two earthworms together and they mate, they're both um, exchanging sperm. And then they will okay. both go off with the sperm from the other partner and then use that to fertilize their own eggs and then roll off from this. Um, if you imagine an earthworm, you always think of this kind of strip around the mid- middle of them, like a, call yes. it a saddle, like a ring. Um, well, that makes this cocoon. So that's the... That's the, the um, part of their body that produces the the material for this cocoon which rolls down the body like a like a hula hoop picks up the fertilized egg and then comes off the head end and produces this cocoon right. we're looking, looking at um, so that section of the body is is a it's not rooted in place uh it is um but they sort of shed the outer layer of it and that's what then produces right. this this cocoon and and they tend to be quite good parents some of them as well so there's there's evidence some some earthworms will be um in their burrows creating special chambers where they'll deposit these cocoons and they'll put some organic material rich soil around them so that when the so that the cocoon doesn't dry out but at the same time also so that the baby baby earthworm has got a nice bit of soil when it when it emerges um there's increasing evidence of, of good p- parenting in earthworms as well, which you wouldn't expect, I suppose. No, well, exactly, because I think that earthworms are they're part of that list of animals where people might say, oh, it's it's just a worm. It's kind of seeing it as the, the, the simplest end of life, seeing it as a kind of just an, an aspect of the soil rather than an animal in and of itself that, that does things and and has a lifestyle. Yeah, um, I think, oh, I mean, it's people often, you know, use it as a condescending term. They're like, oh, yeah, yes. the, you know, the worm, you're a worm. Um, yeah, it's not really fair. Earth, earthworms are doing a lot for us, actually. They're, they're, pretty, they're pretty complex and they, they, they work pretty hard for no, very little gratitude. <laughs> so maybe we should we should stop calling people we don't like worms. Indeed. How do you feel about, uh, have you got any sense of how the how the earthworm community at large feels about the computer game worms. The <laughs> um, I'm sure if they knew what people were saying about them, they'd wish they could get a bazooka and blast people away. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Or a, a baseball bat or something similar. Yeah. Um, and 
let's let's kind of this last thought we're going to have a little look at. I think serves as a really good full stop. This kind of whole discussion because it is it drives home this notion of scale, but it also drives home this idea of un, unseen complexity and interactions and ecosystems that we are unaware of, um, which I am unaware of, and I'm, I'm looking forward to learn more about. Um, in this last picture that you've you provided, we've got what is, it looks like a, a slugger, a snail, we've got a slimy creature's I'll use the word face, but I'm not sure it's quite the word, right word to use. It's head, and we can see it's, it's eye stalks coming towards us. But just beneath one of the eye stalks on this mollusk's face, we can see a little creature crawling. Could you tell us what we're looking at here? Yeah, so, um, yeah, this is the, the, the face of uh, a slug. Um, I like that term, I guess. <laughs> I don't know that it's wrong. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's a slug's face, and um, crawling on it is a very small, so um, about sort of half a millimeter, 0.5 mil sized uh, mite. And it's got like a, a white body and white legs, and it's not got a huge amount of distinguishing features, really. Um, and it's just rushing along the face around the face of this uh, this poor uh, slug, who is its host. So what? yeah, so this is a, a species called uh, Ricardoella uh, udomansi, and it's uh, or the slug mite. Uh, there is another species of I think it's still the same genus name, still Ricardoella, but it's a snail one. So there's there's specific species to specific hosts. Um, and yeah, this mite is a uh, one of those prostigmatid mites, a bit like um, the one that we talked about before. Um, and it's yeah, it spends its entire life running around uh, the body cavities of of slugs, <laughs> which is quite an existence. For a long time, it was thought that they just live there and they're not much think not. bother to the slug. Although it can't be very nice feeling having something crawling all over your skin all the time. Um, no, but. Uh, yeah, we've not we. I didn't do it, but recently some nice. uh, researchers uh, worked out actually they are um, parasitizing the slugs, so they will be feeding on on the blood um, of the slugs, and so over time they do sort of weaken uh, the their hosts, and sort of, then the slugs can become a bit more vulnerable to to diseases and things. So uh, yeah, these poor slugs aren't having a great time, and and they can't really do anything about it, um, and unfortunately then. Um, when they reproduce or when they go by other slugs, um, right. these mites have been shown to follow the um, mucus trails um, to the slug. Uh, and so they'll just crawl along, follow the mucus, and then catch up with the slug and uh, and find a new host. So most slugs, if you ever, if yeah, if you ever see a slug um, and you don't want to throw it over the garden fence or whatever, then just quickly first get a little hand lens if you've got one and Take a little bit of time, just watch yeah, it. Okay. Um, the odds are you're so probably this is not an uncommon little occurrence white then. dots running around on it, and that's that's these. Yeah. No, I think most slugs have got them. Uh, unfortunately for them, yeah. Unfortunately for them, but 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 there's there's kind of the that full stop I was after, and full stop probably is quite an apt comparison for some of these animals, but it kind of does reveal that degree to which we don't notice things that are under our nose, right? So slugs, we all know what a slug is. But maybe I'm not giving people the credit they deserve. I certainly wasn't aware that a lot of slugs had little mites living upon them. And when I walk across a garden or a park below me, there is this degree of complexity in these animals that relate to each other that I'm simply unaware of. And yeah, living complicated lives with with exchanging resources and predating, and we've talked about you know, springtail. Maybe, maybe the springtail is uh, sabotaging another springtail's chances of reproduction, or maybe, or maybe not. And we've we've got animals that are predators, even though they exist on this scale so small we might not even notice them. I, I, it's a an absolutely fascinating world. And the kind of the question I wanted to, to end on is when we do think about animals this small, life that exists in this on this tiny scale, we might be tempted to think these are simple animals. These are, we characterise them as simple living 
you've mentioned that these springtails are very ancient animals and maybe you can even describe them as primitive, a, a word which is in itself lauded, but would it be fair to, to characterise soil-dwelling animals as, as simple animals that live simple lives, do you think? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's a really good question, I think. Um, it's tempting, it's always tempting. I think human human arrogance is always uh, amazing when we look at the natural world and we tend to think we're the we're the pinnacle um of evolution and things and um yeah but i think you i think you touched on it there is like you know these creatures have been around some of them longer than than plants you know certainly longer than our ancestors (laughs) were Mm. um and yeah i guess i I wouldn't say they're i wouldn't say they're simple I, i mean they're obviously i mean talk about intelligence and things and that's not you know, really a comparison, I suppose, to with, with with complex, uh, higher higher creatures, uh, like mammals and things. But yeah, I wouldn't say they're any less complex. Um, they've they're under a lot of different environmental challenges than we are, and they've they've mm-hmm. developed and evolved um, some amazing solutions to those um, to to dealing with life in in a challenging um, challenging world uh, for them. Um, so yeah, they're no less evolved. They're, if anything, it's a testament to the fact that they haven't. Some of them haven't changed that much in a long, long time. That they've, they found a thing that works, and they, they, they stick with it. Um, mm. I mean, like springtails, for example, we're learning stuff from them. So springtail cuticles are what we call a, a metamaterial. Um, so the they, they're sort of built in multiple. Um, scales and structures um, of, of different sizes to a point that they're some of the most sort of water repellent hydrophobic materials we we know of so people are kind of trying to reverse engineer bioengineers are trying to figure out how to reproduce the the skin of springtails on, nice. on a mass scale because it's um, incredibly water repellent and hydrophobic and probably antimicrobial as well um if you look at, if you ever get a chance, do look at like a scanning electron microscope photo of a springtail's cuticle. It's, it's unbelievable, um, and I mean that's more complex than anything we've got probably on our <laughs> on our bodies. I would say, um, sure. uh, yeah, and, and you know like uh, sticking with springtails, you know they're making unique compounds. So uh, have you have you heard of um, snow fleas um, in North America? The, the, uh, yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, so on on snow, quite often there'll there'll be these little. Um, black creatures hopping around um that well they're a kind of springtail but they've got this antifreeze okay. pro- protein in them that's really um is it glycerol rich um anyway it's like a natural antifreeze and so scientists are trying to figure out how they might be able to use that for um antifreeze properties but also for improving i think it's for improving ice cream so yeah right, I mean, okay there's all these amazing things that we that we're learning from these creatures that have just been around a huge amount of time so yeah i wouldn't say that they're they're simple i'd say that they're they're, they're quite complex in in their own way we just need to probably figure out how to to appreciate it in other non-human terms well that's, that's a a profound note to end on um but if people do want to kind of learn more about these animals and if, if people may want to see some of these photos we've been talking about, where would be a good place for them to go and do that? Uh, yeah, OK. Uh, well, um, I'm, I, I've got a website, um, frankashwood.com, um, and on there I've got links to lots of other lots of other things. So there's, I've got a resources page and uh, you'll find links to uh, things like the soil uh, Global Soil Biodiversity Initiative, which is... Um, brilliant resource where they've they've got a, a free online atlas of um, the global soil biodiversity atlas and you can download that as a pdf and um, it's got introductions to all of these creatures and um, information about their distribution around the world um i would urge people to look at the earthworm society of britain as well um because they do a lot um and always nice to support them um and yeah and if you get a chance go to chaos of delight as well my friend andy's uh macro photography website because he's got some amazing pictures on there um especially about if the talk of springtails has wet your whistle um you'll learn a lot there oh my my whistle is firmly wetted so so thank you mm-hmm. thank you so much for for spending the afternoon uh chatting to me about these this incredible world i re- really do appreciate you spending time speak with me oh it's my pleasure um yeah thanks again for, for having me on Cheers. Thank you so much. Bye now.
Thanks, Tom. Bye. I thank us again to Frank Ashwood for sharing his expertise and talking us through this fascinating landscape, illuminating the creatures that inhabit the soil. His website again is frankashwood.com. Even in editing this episode, I found myself drawn back there. It's a beautiful photographic catalogue of springtails, mites, symphylans, earthworms, and so much more which we didn't get a chance to cover here. So go and discover the diplurans, the proturans, and water bears or tardigrades. Since we, reco- since we recorded this episode, Frank's also discovered a passion for lichen, so if you're liking the sound of that, you know where to go. Investigating the soil, the drama of it, the lives unfolding there, reminds me of the sometimes euphoric and sometimes troubling reality that what we know and what we experience is in no way normal. We have to experience the world in a certain way. We have to feel human within the world, like it or not. These creatures, though, the mesofauna, are living unseen lives which are hard to comprehend but are unquestionably real. They scamper across tiny grains of mineral matter, scuttle through microcosmic landscapes of mould and mosses and fungal threads. They hunt each other, they flee each other. The animal world is dazzling in its complexity, ferocious in its capacity to surprise us. Consider that these lives unfold in the smallest front gardens. Consider that a single footstep would carry you over a dramatic landscape, a minute world, rich with life, teeming with stories which we'll never fully be able to appreciate. Grubbing in the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hutton. Our thanks again to Frank Ashwood. You can follow Grubbing in the Filth on social media. On Instagram, it's at Grubbing in the Filth, and on Twitter, it's at GIF Podcast. You can also email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com. To contribute to the running of the podcast, which would be really appreciated, you can donate on buymeacoffee.com slash grubbingcast. Bye.